Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 77, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Why one state will nix licensure exams for some teachers, and why drawing may be the fastest and most effective way to learn. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we'll tell you about a program that has lifted ninth grade performance in virtually every type of school it's been implemented in. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I'm great. Hey, I want to make a, a, a request. Like a song request? Li- well, for our listeners, I need help with something. Okay. And I need, I, I need, I know that this exists, and I just don't know how to put my hands on it. So I teach art to almost 700 second and third graders a week. And I, we all know that, that, that it comes up on this podcast all the time that, that we're not teaching character anymore in schools that we're not teaching social interactions anymore in Mm -hmm. schools like so I find that I'm teaching it all the time in art class like hey you know when you took that paint away from that other child that you were sharing with like that's not nice you know they want to be able to reach it too yeah and the kids are always like oh I mean yeah no I can totally put it back in the middle you know like they just are not aware so anyway life lessons come up all the time in my class and issues with respect or things like that and um, just social interactions um, just come up in the creative art process. I would love to start each period with a short video or something that teaches a character development trait of the week or, um, you know, some kind of, or how to show respect when speaking, someone speaking directly to you, you know, how to, how to take that on and look, look them right in the eye. I'm doing it usually on the fly when I see it, you know, mm-hmm. But I would love for there to be some type of video or curriculum, something so you that's want appropriate. Somebody, you're hoping somebody out there has like a YouTube channel. They that probably like, do. There's yeah. probably a resource that I don't even know about that yeah. I could purchase, that I could show on the smart board in front of the class. That's like a two or three minute segment. Directed towards the students. Yes. Yeah. That's like, like, like basically like Mr. Rogers, but Absolutely. Or like the more you know, like right. one of those kind of things yeah. where... Where we, because they're the, the teachers in the regular classroom, they don't have time. I mean, they don't. And right. I don't have time, but it. I think it would go just fine in my class if yeah. we were talking about respect for elders or if we were talking about. Or maybe you should make a YouTube channel if it's not oh, out there, you know. I mean. 60 to 90 <laughs> seconds of video. and I just think it's something that needs to happen. And I could, I could reach 700 children if I there you go. if I had that and talked about it at the beginning of each art, art lesson and then we dive right in. So if you are out there and you know of a good resource, how do they how do they get that to me, Nick, through you? Yeah, yeah. If anybody has, um, you know, knows of an idea or somebody who's already doing this, let us know. Um, email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. You got to include podcast in there. Yes, yeah. I would really appreciate it. I yeah. know it's out there. Yeah. What else do you know? Uh, anything going down in the uh, teacher's lounge? 
Well, Mississippi is making changes based on their teacher shortage. I know we've heard of teacher shortage all across the nation, but Mississippi's having to change some things to make up. And yeah, try I to saw the down. headline and I haven't read the article in detail, so I'm curious about this. Well, so every state is different with their licensure. I have the hardest time saying that word. Licensures. Um, But in in Mississippi, you have to make a 21 or higher on the ACT. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you have to pass the Praxis Core. That's now? Mm -hmm, To be a teacher. I thought everyone had to do the Praxis already. No. If you make above a 21 on the ACT, you don't have to take the Praxis Core. Okay. Now, then you do have to take another praxis at the end of your degree right. you have to take the praxis content um area test and so that that is specific to what grade level you're going to teach or subject matter that you're going to teach so some people do have to take two praxis tests if they didn't make a Would 21 that be <laughs> they, they if they didn't make above a 21 on their act then yes they would be taking two yeah praxi but if they take But if they made above a 21 on their ACT, they still have to take the content area praxis at the end. Right. And we have said, you know, of course, they're timed and people have a hard time passing. Right. And certainly people have a hard time passing like middle school mathematics and things like that. Because to be highly qualified, you have to have that beside your name. You can't just be an upper grades teacher. You have to test out in the area you're teaching Mm -hmm. if that's all you're teaching at the middle school. So... Anyway, Mississippi has um, started some changes to try to fill the gap because there's a lot of substitute teachers that are teaching year-long substitutes. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, okay, something's got to give. You know, we've got to change this because what's the difference? We're telling these people they can't be teachers and they've gone to college to be a teacher. Right. But they just can't pass this test at the end. Right. And we're telling them, no, you can't be a teacher even though you went to college to be a teacher. And then we've got these people over here that didn't go to college, yet we're letting them be in the classroom all day, every day for the year. Basically like because a, we cannot, a temporary teacher, as, right. but it's called a substitute. Because, right. Yeah. It's a, it's a long-term sub because yeah. we don't have enough applicants for jobs. And so... They're saying that they don't have enough applicants because people can't so, pass the criterion. And so, so, so I understand this right. They're gonna the Praxis Core they get a pass on, or the other Praxis. So what they're changing is they're going to do. They're allowing a hundred teachers. This is in Mississippi. A hundred teachers to be certified based on performance assessments without a test. That's right. And the, I guess they're doing a hundred because this is like they're doing a trial run. That's right. This they're, is they a don't pilot open program. The doors. And so they're going to, these hundred teachers are going to go ahead into the field Mm -hmm. and they're going to be evaluated like every teacher is all the time, all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they're going to basically, however they score and based on their students' test scores, they're using that also as a rule uh, to measure. Then they're going to be given a certificate, a permanent certificate. So I guess my question is, and I was trying to skim through the article some while you were talking, I didn't see this information, but like... How many times is somebody not able to get licensed because they can't pass the test? Is it is it frequent? You think so? In the last five years in Mississippi, teach forty we're down forty percent of people who like would have been a teacher. That's right. That that that, that are not teachers. Pass. Right. Forty percent so of in the last five years. So there's like sixty percent are passing. 
That's right. So okay. five years ago, yeah. there wasn't as much of a problem or whatever, but now we're down 40% of applicants entering the field. And they're well, saying that, that's that- different though. That's like you're down applicants. We know that there is a shortage, but I wonder like how many times are people going to take the test and they just can't pass it? And I don't- I, yeah, I, uh, you know. I don't know. There may be a statistic that shows that exactly. I'm sure it's pretty high for them to be able to do this. I'm kind of, yeah, if I don't see it in the article, and I, I'm kind of disappointed they didn't ask, because that's the first question I would ask, is like, all right, so so we remove this obstacle. Right. What do you get? You must have data saying, you know, oh, well, we would have had a thousand more teachers if we just had removed this obstacle. Right. Um, and that's kind of where, where I'm curious And I remember are. when we talked about this with Florida, there was a statistic from Florida. They did have a number of, this is how many yeah. we we lost out on because they couldn't pass the exam and most of them couldn't pass the exam because they ran out of time. So I remember we did a story. Right. And and the the exam got harder in Florida. Yeah. But so, but here's the, here's the question. And are we lowering the bar? I don't think so. Um, Now there may be people that say, yeah, you are. But in my opinion at, at where we are now, if you're going to let somebody be a long-term sub that is, you, you know, they didn't, didn't even go to college. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they're a great person and, right. they, and they're helping out and they're in that classroom. I, if, if it were my child in that classroom, I'd rather have someone that, that went to college to train, to be a teacher, wants to be a teacher, right. but can't, I would, re- I would want them in the pilot program right. and let's just see, let's see how they do. It yeah. can't be any worse than the long-term sub. That, that's what I do like about this is the fact that it is a pilot program. So yeah, you, you let these hundred people through right. and then you reevaluate them a year or two, three years down the road and you might find that all their principals go, you know what? This person's an incredible teacher right. um, and they, they're doing what they're born to do. Right. Um, so that would be a good thing. So yeah, I guess that's... And, and for Mississippi, the average ACT score across the board in Mississippi, the average is 18 of an ACT score. So, so if you think about that and you're, you know, and and I, I mean, I know that everybody likes to pick on Mississippi that we're last, last, last or whatever. But if, if the average ACT score is an 18 Mm -hmm. across anyone entering college, right? then we're requiring an ACT score of 21 or above or this equivalent test. Yeah. You know, then I could see where that turns away more people than you probably think. Yeah. Yep. Well, that one is interesting. I've got a story for you that you're going to be all excited about. <laughs> it was in um, Inc. Inc.com. And essentially the story argues, and it's got research to back it, that drawing is the fastest and most effective way to learn. Period. Like they say Love that it. they say that if and it doesn't matter if you're a good drawer, like if you are just sketching or doodling in a short period of time, you are going to retain what you're sketching and doodling to memory more so than you would if you wrote it out. Is this uh, because of opposite side of the brain kind of thing where it, you're fueling both sides? There is a hypothesis on why it is, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, they didn't actually like you know go in and say this is exactly why it's happening, but they did a basic study, and it's like as simple as any study that you would do. It was a bunch of researchers in Canada, and they would take a group of volunteers, and they were asked to memorize a list of words and, or definitions, and half were instructed to repeatedly write down the words and definitions, and the other half was told to draw them draw in an order to memorize them. You know, so who did better? And like overwhelmingly, the people who were drawing the pictures did better. Um, and then even they were like, all right, well, let's try it where you trace a picture 
you know, and see if that, and they found that those people even did better than the ones who were writing it out. Wasn't as good as the results of truly drawing it yourself and having to think about it. Um, so, so what do you think? I mean, you're an artist at heart here. So what do you think? Yeah, I think there's, you know, this reminds me of the episode where Wes was saying that one day we won't have paper or whatever in classrooms, <laughs> yeah, you, and I got so upset. Yeah, yeah. I think, are you still mad about that? <laughs> I mean, clearly, <laughs> yeah. I'm still bringing it up, but I absolutely agree with this. I think, yes, there is something from the beginning of creation that is, you know, tactile. I mean, you, you're talking and, about hieroglyphics. Yes, and, so yeah. I, I just feel like you can't, you can't change it. I mean, it's universal. Sorry. The, the, re- <laughs> the researchers hypothesize that because drawing gives your brain so many different ways to engage with new material, you have to figure out how to draw it. And by imagining it and the details in your mind, you're going to actually have more of a physical feeling and then you're going to render out that idea. Then in the end, you, you just have it retained to your memory better. Yeah, so, I agree. I like it. So I guess the, the question is like, should an English teacher you know, say, don't just make flashcards. Well, mm. they do. They they tell the, uh, I mean, I know that, I know many, many teachers that they make flashcards with a right. definition, but they separate it into a quadrant. Right. So in the upper left, you put the word. In the upper right, you put the definition. Mm-hmm. In the bottom left, you draw a picture. See, so that's In the great. bottom right, you use it in the sentence. So I, I did not know that was happening, and that's great. And <laughs> if it, someone's not doing it, it sounds like they should. And here's the yeah. research to back it up. It's a so great the, strategy. So the picture goes a long way. Um, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. Have you heard of um, BAR, B-A-R-R? Sounds familiar. Building Assets and Reducing Risk Program. And, and apparently, they've been the small program that has actually been in effect for a while, and they have the research to say it has lifted ninth grade performance in virtually every type of school, um, no matter what demographic or whatever, by using this BAR program. And we are talking to some of the folks from that program. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is the creator of one of the most consistent school improvement models in the country, Angie Jerbeck's BAR program that stands for Building Assets and Reducing Risk, targets ninth graders by making sure some educators truly understand what's going on in their students' lives. And the results are better attendance, fewer discipline referrals, and a reduction in course failures. Angie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited too because I read about this uh, online in a, in a few different articles, and uh, I think you've even been featured on uh, NPR as well. And I'm just fascinated with what you're doing here. But before we dive in to exactly what Bar does, I want to get a little bit of your backstory because I think if I understand this right, that's probably kind of tells us where all of this began. You started as a guidance counselor, is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, I worked in a high school right outside of Minneapolis as a ninth grade counselor. And so as you were a counselor, you must have, that's where you probably saw a need for what you're doing now. Is that right? That is. Yes. And um, kind of a bit of the story is in 1998, it was the fifth year that I was um, counseling ninth graders and um, I had half the students failing a course and I was incredibly discouraged. So I had gone to kind of try all the best practices and I was going to the middle school to talk to the incoming students. And year after year, half the students were failing a course and um, went to the principal to tenure my resignation. And in a very helpful way, he provided a much broader context and said this wasn't an issue just with our school and this was a national issue and really encouraged me to come up with a a different way to um, kind of approach secondary schools, but in particular ninth grade. And um, kind of with that was the beginning of BAR. And so I guess you started this at the school that you were at originally. 
Correct. And so yeah. how did you get to where you are today? I guess it, it's kind of blown up into a much larger program, right? Yes, yes. So um, the the model itself, once again, is kind of it resonates with educators in a very real way. And then our, our impacts have absolutely been um, kind of incredibly consistent, as you had said. So really what happened is this model was in place at the high school I worked at, which was um, St. Louis Park High School around in Minneapolis, right outside Minneapolis. And um, for about 10 years, we always had um, an outside evaluator. So we knew that the research was real and the students were both doing better in terms of earning credits and um, the graduation rates were climbing and the opportunity gap was closing. And um, the first I-3 competition was announced, the um, Investing in Innovation competition from the U.S. Department of Education. And I thought, well, this should work anywhere. This isn't touching pedagogy. It's not touching curriculum. Um, I'm using the current staff. And so I thought, well, I should work with a small rural school on the East Coast, and I'll work with a large urban school on the West Coast, and I'll stay in suburban Midwest, and I'll be able to show that this works kind of any place. So that was 2010 when um, that I wrote that first um, grant application. Okay, so let's try to, and I don't want to simplify what you're doing, but I want the the listeners yeah. to quickly understand what you're doing. And the way I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you all are are targeting ninth graders, but you're doing this using a few different methods. But one that really stood out to me is your teachers are are broken up into teams, and and they're keeping a very close eye on every student, not just picking and choosing. Is that right? Right. So kind of the the model itself is professional development and training. And kind of, as you've said, we are both um, kind of really challenging and um, kind of changing those belief systems or making sure that we have a strength-based belief system in place, as well as structures. And so when you're talking about those teaming pieces, we are wanting to make sure that every student in the grade has got multiple adults that are um, kind of knowing who they are. We provide structures to make sure that everyone's being seen and that they're in relationships. And then we're sharing that information between the adults. So that's kind of a, a, a really key piece is that we need to make sure that every student is having multiple adults that are really able to ensure that they're thriving. Can you kind of give me a, an example of of what the teachers are doing, maybe like a, a real life scenario without without using names? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, kind of one of the key components, as, as you've referenced, is in particular having these team meetings and really equipping all of the adults in the building to be very attentive to just noticing. We talk about noticing being a skill and then sharing that information. So a really concrete example would be kind of one of our large urban schools in, in California. Um, one of the very first weeks of school, we had three adults that were meeting talking about their students. And um, one of the adults had said, I've got some girls that are skipping my class every Friday and Monday. We should look at, you know, giving them a consequence for that. And the next teacher said, I saw those same girls. They're not sitting with the ninth graders in the cafeteria. Um, Someone should give them a quiet lunch. And then the next teacher said, you know what? They're also not making dress code. We should look at maybe, you know, doing a dress code violation. And the bar coaching team is always working with somebody on site. It's the bar coordinator that we're um, coaching in the model. So the coordinator said, let me look into it and I'll get back to you. And they came back a couple days later and it turns out the girls are being sex trafficked and they're being shipped out on Thursday night and they're being shipped back on Monday night. Wow. So none of those individual observations were alarming to the adults. But when you put them all together, you have this, you know, um, in this case, really, you know, tragic and, you know, serious situation in terms of the students. But when we're consistently doing that in our um, schools across the country, we're really unleashing this tremendous amount of knowledge and ability to really ensure that every student is thriving. So what is it about bar that makes it 
necessary or mandatory, maybe I should say, for those conversations to happen. Mm -hmm. So once again, I think that's leaning into some of the structural pieces. So a key piece in if a school is going to take the bar model on, we do need to have those weekly team meetings where we have teachers that are coming from teaching different classes. So it's not via department. So like math and social studies and English um, that are talking about students and it's the students that they're, that they're sharing. So they're able to say, you know, Hannah was late to first hour, but she was in class second and third hour and really have a full picture of it and be like, Nick is really passionate about art and we need to make sure that we can leverage that, that passion he has to make sure that, that Nick is, is um, kind of fully, um, kind of realizing his potential, but making sure that that structure is in place, that that's allowing that to have happen, as well as getting that training in place and the coaching. When you introduce the bar program to a new school, um, are teachers skeptical sometimes? And what are their concerns? And, and how do you win them over? So I think that in general, the, the bar model really resonates naturally with educators. I think the skepticism comes is because many of the um, strategies look um like best practices. And so many of the schools will say, oh, we have teacher teams meeting or we have an advisory, you know, thing in place. But I think a key piece about what BAR is, is it puts them all together and the systems feed each other, as well as I go back to that idea of having a strength-based approach. So when it's orchestrated together and you're all talking the same language, we're really seeing, you know, kind of tremendous impacts. So the the skepticism often comes with, I'm already doing that. The difference is the, is the results. So as you've seen, our, we consistently are saying, well, you know, we need to see the data to be able to, to show that all students are really getting the attention that they need. And so what results do you like to point to? Because I've, I've read through some of it and it's tough to, to put it all out on a podcast. Mm -hmm. But what stands out in your mind to say, you know, this is working? Um, so one of the first things that we really look at is we look at measures that schools have to report on um, in terms of, you know, uh, our students attending, our students, um, you know, earning their credits, um, what's the graduation rate looks like? And then in particular, what's it looking like in terms of um, those subgroup, but making sure that that gap is closing. So we, when we talk about our, our motto, which is um, same students, we're really talking about all students, we need to make sure all students are thriving. And then we talk about um, the, the same teachers were really leveraging the talent within the school versus replacing them. But then that better results is we are really coaching that school to be able to be running their data quickly and also empowering their um, staff to be able to use the data that's available to them to put together this, this picture of this whole student. If I understand right, something that you all are really, really proud of is um, the fact that you've had success in different schools with different mm -hmm. makeups and, and different demographics. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so we go back to, you know, 2010, where I was like, I really think this should work any place. This should not be something based on, you know, um, being in the Midwest. And so we have um, basically, I kept saying, let's test it until it breaks. So we're in, you know, really large, you know, kind of bureaucratic districts. So we're in Dallas, and we're in Boston, and we're in Baltimore. And we're in the Appalachian region. So we really have, um, we've been in suburban schools. So we're in 15 states in D.C., and a lot of that's been based on the fact that we've been um, funded heavily to do research. And at this point, every school that's taking the model on is, is seeing changes within the year. Typically, this, we have an average failure rate drop of 35% in year one. So it it's consistently working. And I believe it's consistently working because, once again, um, I think we're unleashing the talent that um, educators kind of naturally have, as well as we are accessing kind of um, all those students. 
how hard has it been to scale the program up to, to that many schools? The people who do the professional development and the training are actual BAR educators. So I think that's another key piece is we're really getting getting rid of that teacher credibility piece. So schools that take the BAR model on can choose to um, become a BAR coach and trainer. So the scalability has really continued to grow as our schools grow. So we've got about, you know, 30 or 40 trainers right now. We have another 20 or 30 that are interested. So we really can continue to scale as we scale. So we are unleashing kind of the the talent of the workforce, both within the school, but kind of within the nation. So we have schools from, you know, Baltimore, teachers from Baltimore working with schools in Dallas, and we have schools from rural Maine working in rural Kentucky. So we're really able to make sure that we are not um, kind of limiting um, the talent that we have. Um, iTime is something that stood out to me as I was reading through mm-hmm. your program. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that? So iTime was a little tongue in cheek. So when I did develop this model, this was for the school that I was working at. And so I said in ninth grade, it's all about them. Let's just take 30 minutes a week. And this is the pronoun I, this is way before iPhones or any of those things. I'm like, let's just talk about you for 30 minutes. So that's how the name came to be. But the the goal of it is absolutely building a relationship. And it's building a relationship both from staff to student as well as student to student. But a key piece is the teacher is not delivering the lesson. They're facilitating the lesson. So just as the students are participating, so are the adults. So like an example would be an early lesson would be what's on your plate where everybody in the class is writing down things they do for pleasure, things they do for obligation, things that they're interested in. So the teacher could be sharing, I'm training for a marathon and I have two kids and going to graduate school. So they're sharing pieces of their life with the students, which really humanize um, that interaction, just like the students are sharing things. So in particular, if a teacher is reading during that activity that they watch siblings after school or have a part-time job, when that first homework assignment doesn't come in on time, there's a context for that. So they don't think, oh, the student was maybe not motivated or didn't care about my assignment. They already have a sense of, well, I know they had other things going on, or there was a big basketball tournament last weekend and I know he was playing in it. So it just finds it's a, it's like structures that provide ways that we can have these human interactions. Is there a school that sticks out in your mind that, that took on the program that maybe at one point you thought, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but now you've just been able to watch it grow and succeed. Yes. And I would say that when we say it, it works at every school, the the pace at which it, which it goes, I think is, you know, um, is varied. But um, there was one school in particular that um, really felt that they were doing all the components. They had been having teams in place for over 20 years. They had a advisory um, thing that was, you know, a social emotional curriculum. So they were like, we're already doing this. And so we thought, well, if it's not going to be that heavy of a lift, it'd be great for you to participate, you know, in this study. And they had such tremendous success with it. They actually went sixth through 11th grade with it, um, moved it down into middle school. And so, but it, it was in kind of an, a much more skeptical staff in terms of coming in because so many of the um, structures that we were naming, they said we were, we were already doing and they had them. They had a semblance of them, but I think once again, orchestrating them and having the coaching and having the training just made a, a really big difference. Yeah. I mean, is what is it about your structure that, you know, they, they thought they were doing it and then I guess you got mm-hmm. in there and, and you guys made them actually do it to make sure <laughs> that you had that structure. Like what's different? Yeah. So I will go back to that strength-based approach. So for example, even if a school does have a, a kind of a, 
a, a team that's that's meeting, that's not talking about curriculum and not talking about kind of a department about students, one of the kind of um, ways that schools are set up is you often are looking for outliers in a negative deficit, you know, kind of based way. Who's not on grade level? Who's not going to pass the test? But it, it really often is looking for kind of what's wrong with kids. And I think when this model actively pushes and you have to be constantly naming what's right about the students and how can we leverage that, that within itself, that culture change often takes a long time. Like the, it makes sense. People are like, oh, of course, we're doing that. Of course, I look for student strengths. But then the reality is a much more, you know, kind of a, um, it, it really transforms the, the school in a much bigger way. What does it take for a school that's interested or wants to learn more? And like, how extensive is it to get on board? So um, schools that are interested, the first thing we you know, advise is to go on our website, which I think you you did at www.barcenter.org. Mm-hmm. But then when a school is interested, one of the first steps we do is we do a, a webinar with them so they can, you know, shoot us an email. And then we have um, webinars, we can explain what the model looks. We also um, strongly encourage schools to reach out to other schools on our website, you can see lots of other schools that are doing it to be able to um, kind of be able to talk to other schools that are doing things. But and then we, in terms of schools, I mean, some schools pivot fast, and they're like, okay, we're in, we're going to go with this, you know, and others, you know, kind of take their time and do school visits, but um, it's it's really up to the school in terms of when they want to choose to take it in, as well as it's up to the school on how m- many staff they want to get trained in it right away. So, like we, it, it's a it's a grade wide um, intervention, but for the first year, sometimes schools say we're just going to start this off with like a team or two teams of teachers and a group of students versus all students. So we work with the the school to say kind of how does that feel most comfortable, and then grow it internally. And I apologize if you gave me this number already, but how many schools are you in? 105. 105. Did you ever envision when, you know, you almost tendered your resignation (laughs) that that you would now be here? No, absolutely not. Yes, it's incredibly humbling. And it's really exciting to be able to have um, these many, you know, kind of students being impacted and this many educators being able to really kind of realize why they chose this profession and be able to see the successes they're having. Well, Angie, I mean, it sounds like you guys are having a huge amount of success and, and it looks like you'll have the data to actually back that up. So uh, mm-hmm. kudos to all that you're doing. Again, uh, the website is barcenter.org if someone wants to learn more. Um, are you ready for our pop quiz? I am ready for the pop quiz. All right. Uh, first question is, if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Okay, that's easy. Music. I was a music performance major. I love music. So there you go. Okay. Well, but but why music? This is just one subject. And you're not the first person to say that, but I am curious to the reason why. Yeah. So I... Um, I think music has a way of both having connections. Music, once again, can cover language arts. Music can cover math. I mean, I think there's so many other um, kind of subject matters that can be covered. At the same time, music also, you know, almost always involves others. You know, so you have both the ability to kind of this individual relationship with music, but you have a natural way that you're going to be connecting with others. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I think a lot of that's really around um, like the I times, which I was um, referencing. I think those those abilities, you know, to learn communication skills, the ability to be attentive to others. We we do a, a, a lesson uh, about um, listening. And, you know, like um, the other thing is like 
if you say yes, but you're rolling your eyes and you're in ninth grade, what are you really saying? But like those ideas of kind of, you know, what's your verbal and nonverbal communication skills? And I don't know that there's a lot of overt instruction of that anymore. So oftentimes I think eye time are just things that everybody in our you know world should be reminded of, of how, how we how we interact. What does every child deserve? Oh, they deserve multiple adults who really know who they are and that they can talk to and that they're, the adults are really you know, being attentive to them and are able to support them. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, probably finding a way to um, tap into this you know, kind of why you chose to be an educator and having a system to be able to do it and not feeling kind of um, like you have uh, too many expectations around things that aren't really able to kind of when you're not realizing your passion. What's the best gift to give an educator? Um, time. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, that one's easy. Mr. Bingham who is my woodworking teacher, um, and I was horrible at woodworking, and it was in seventh grade, and he was so kind and supportive and clearly, like, cared about me, and that was such a, like, an interesting thing because I was normally a really good student, and I guess I thought teachers, like, liked me based on the fact that I was good at things and the fact that I was horrible at his class, and he was, like, so interested. That was a... Very eye-opening experience for me. That's really cool. And last question, pen or pencil? Oh, pen, for sure. <laughs> I may scribble out, but it's going to be pen. All right, Angie Jair, back again. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat. I didn't get to ask you, if somebody wants to find you guys on social media, is that a place that you all are, or you even personally, that uh, you like to hang out we at? We are on social media. It's at Bar Center, at Bar Center, on both Twitter and on, on Facebook. All right. Good stuff. Again, uh, barcenter.org is the website. And we appreciate your time, Angie. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember, you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget, you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega. Go, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.